Hour 10. Everything hurts. My feet. My back. Oh. Covered in sweat. It was like 90 degrees out today. So tired. Just want to be home. <laughs> I'm Caleb Bissinger, and this is a special episode of The Next Big Idea. Last Sunday, I got up early, made a couple peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, laced up my running shoes, put my phone in airplane mode, and walked out my front door. And then I walked, and walked, and walked some more. By lunchtime, I'm sitting by the Pacific Ocean, watching kids splashing in the waves. I sat there for a while, wolfed down a PB&J, but this wasn't my final destination. Turning inland, I ambled up into the Pacific Palisades, where houses the size of ski lodges hide behind paparazzi thwarting fences, and the streets have names like Amalfi and Monaco. From there, I headed east, marching past the Los Angeles National Cemetery, the final resting place of tens of thousands of veterans from nine different wars. I'd been at it for about seven or eight hours at this point, further than I'd ever walked before, but not as far as I intended to go. You see, my goal that day was to walk for 12 hours, and not, I should add, as some sort of physical challenge, although it was physically challenging, but as a way to unplug and decompress a way to give myself the time and space to dwell deeply on this life of mine, unencumbered by the omnipresent distractions of our times. I walked in silence, no music, no podcasts, only my thoughts for company. By hour 10 of hoofing it nonstop in 90 degree heat, I was pretty banged up. I'm gonna do it, I can do it. Oh, there goes my knee. <laughs> but I was also pretty blissed out. When I returned home 12 hours and 32 miles after I'd left, I felt proud. I felt contented. On the outside, I needed a shower. But on the inside, I was refreshed. When I told friends about my day-long walk, I got one of two responses. Either they'd say, wow, that's amazing. Or they'd look at me funny and ask, why? To that second group, the naysayers, I'd reply that there's ample scientific research that long walks nourish your brain. Consider the 2014 study conducted by two researchers at Stanford that found taking a walk outside significantly improves your ability to think creatively. I'd also tell them that the reason I went out and walked all day wasn't entirely an act of willful self-improvement. It was also for work for this podcast preparation for a conversation with adventurer Colin O'Brady about his new book, The 12-Hour Walk. Invest one day, conquer your mind, and unlock your best life. Colin has a lot of experience walking for 12 hours. In 2018, he became the first person ever to make a solo, unsupported, and fully human-powered crossing of Antarctica and he did it by dragging a 375-pound sled. Actually, the technical term is manhauling. He manhauled a 375-pound sled 
12 hours a day for 54 straight days across 932 miles of frigid nothingness. What makes this feat especially remarkable is that he accomplished it 10 years after a catastrophic injury that led doctors to say he might never walk properly again. I first met Colin when he was recovering from that injury, though I didn't know it at the time. It was the summer of 2008. He was in his early 20s. I was 17 and visiting colleges on the West Coast with my stepmom. We were passing through Portland and she said, let's go spend the night with these old friends of mine. We used to live together in a commune. Those were Colin's parents. That night, as we all sat around, he told stories about riding his bike across America. He talked about surfing. I'd never met someone who surfed. He mentioned this big job he had lined up, working in finance in Chicago. He was funny, a great storyteller. You ever meet someone whose personality is that unusual combination of steely ambition and laid back charm? Maybe it's a West Coast thing. Anyway, whatever it is, he had it. And I remember thinking, oh man, this is the coolest guy I've ever met. But I also remember something odd. Although it was the middle of summer, Colin was wearing compression tights all down his legs and over his feet. I figured they were a fashion statement, maybe something to do with surfing. Only later did I find out that they were a medical necessity, that Colin, despite his easygoing demeanor, was still recovering from an absolutely hellish ordeal. You know, after college, I graduated college in 2006. I had an economics degree from Yale, so a lot of my friends were going off to work on Wall Street. and. Uh, I just didn't, wasn't speaking to my heart in that moment. I just had this call of adventure. I really wanted to see a little bit of the world. And so I had painted houses every summer when I was a kid through high school and into college and saved up every year a few thousand dollars to say like, you know, I want to, I want to see the world one day. Um, and so when I graduated from college, I felt like that was my opportunity. So I took, you know, the few thousand dollars I'd saved up a backpack, a surfboard and, and kind of set off from the world on a adventure by myself. And on a total shoestring budget, I was a hitchhike through New Zealand. I was like sleeping on people's couches wherever I could meet someone who put me up for free for the night, you know, staying in youth hostels, you know, have a couple dollars in my pocket for a few beers at night. Mm -hmm. um, but it was a great experience all until I found myself on this small beach in rural Thailand. And I uh, decided to uh, jump a flaming jump rope, which retrospectively, <laughs> not a great idea. But uh, in an instant, my life changed. You know, that rope was soaked in kerosene. I tripped on the rope. The kerosene splattered my body, lit me on fire to my neck. Uh, fortunately, I jumped into the ocean to extinguish the flames, but not before about 25% of my body um, was severely burned, predominantly my legs and my feet. And, you know, it, it's a longer story, but to paint the picture uh, quickly, I was uh, rushed to a quote unquote hospital, but where I was, there was no proper hospital medical facility. So I had a moped ride down a dirt path instead of an ambulance. I was in this kind of one room nursing station shack, um, makeshift kind of facility where I underwent some, some surgeries and I would come out and there was a cat running around my bed and across my chest in this sort of makeshift ICU. So the worst part of it was the physical pain was, was really bad, but the emotional pain of the doctor walking in and say, hey, Colin, you'll probably actually never walk again normally based on the way your ankles and your knees and the ligaments in your kind of joints were uh, burned, they thought be fused together um, in a way that wouldn't give me full mobility. And I remember just a sinking feeling mm -hmm. in my body, mind and psyche during that time. Fortunately, my credible mother came to my bedside. Uh, you know, she found me out of four or five days into this ordeal 
I know now as a parent, how horrible that would be to see your child in that state and how fearful and afraid she must have been. And she admits she was, but she, in that moment, chose to not show me her fear and this amazing, you know, stand of courage. And instead, give me to dream about the future. She's like, you're 22 years old. What do you want to do when you get out of here? Let's set a goal. And she had me kind of dreaming about the future. Um, and she was like, if you could do anything, what would you do? And I closed my eyes and I visualized that day. I said, oh, this is going to sound stupid given what my legs look like right now, but I'd love to one day race a triathlon. And she said, great, well, you're doing that. And she could have easily said, yeah, I said set a goal, but you know, maybe something <laughs> a little more realistic. But then she says to me, she goes, in fact, you should start training right now. And she yells over to the doctor. She goes, hey, doc. My son's training for a triathlon. Can you bring him in some weights? I have this picture of me. I'm in the Thai hospital. I'm bandaged from my waist down. The doctors told me I'm never going to walk again normally. And I'm lifting 10-pound dumbbells. And the doctor's standing in the back corner. He's got this look on his face like this stupid American kid. Like, what is he doing? And I'm like, Doc, I'm training for a triathlon. And, you know, fast-forwarding way forward from there to complete the story is several months I was in that Thai hospital. Finally flew back to Portland, Oregon, where I grew up was in a wheelchair when I got home, carried on off the plane, hadn't taken a single step. My mom and a series of physical therapists, you know, helped me take those first steps and learn how to walk again. And then 18 months after being burned in this fire, not long after I met you, uh, when I met you, I was in this recovery phase. I had to wear compression right. garments for a year. I couldn't wear shoes for a really long time. I tell the story in my new book, The 12 Hour Walk, is showing up to my first job interview, you know, wearing fluffy, fluffy slippers because I literally right. couldn't wear shoes trying to be all professional in a job interview. Wearing fluffy slippers is a little bit hard for anyone to take you seriously. Um, but I moved to Chicago, signed up for the Chicago Triathlon, and then 18 months after being burned in this fire, 18 months after being told I would never walk again normally, I, I race the Chicago triathlon and finish that race, which is my goal. But to my complete and utter surprise, uh, I won the entire race, um, placing first out of nearly 5,000 people. And it's an, an interesting turning point. And certainly, you know, as I sit here 14 years after that, humbly with, you know, with 10 world records all set after that, all set with those same legs where I was told mm -hmm. I would never walk again normally. It's not just this moment of like, wow, I'm this superhuman athlete. It's this moment really around mindset, right? It's this moment of in this Thai hospital realizing, looking back, I was in a negative downward spiral. I was definitely not going to get out of this place without my mother's guidance. But that shift in mindset, that shift in perspective, I realized as humans, we all have these reservoirs of untapped potential to achieve extraordinary things. But when we're facing this adversity, we kind of have these choices. And in this moment, my mother pushed me towards this possible mindset rather than this mindset of um, scarcity or fear that I was definitely headed toward. So like Colin said, he enters the Chicago Triathlon on a lark and he wins. And soon after, he's invited to attend a professional triathlon training camp in Australia. But doing that would mean quitting his high-paying job in finance and taking a risk on a notoriously low-paying sport, a sport that he'd only ever done once. So he's got a choice to make, and he chooses triathlon. He spends the next few years in the pro tour, and it's kind of like a repeat of that trip he took after college, sleeping on people's couches, living on a shoestring budget. Though if his previous globe trotting was driven by the humble desire to see the world, now he's chasing a much bigger goal. He wants to qualify for the Olympics. But it doesn't work out. So now what's he supposed to do? Go get another high-paying, soul-crushing job? There's got to be something else, right? Something more meaningful. And in 2014, he figures out what that is. And this is actually where our stories link up again. 
Colin announced his plans to break a fabled world record, and I flew to Portland to write a magazine story about it. And so my wife and I, um, my then fiance, set ourselves a goal to see if I could do something called the Explorer's Grand Slam, which was to climb the tallest mountain on each of the seven continents, as well as complete expeditions to both the North Pole and the South Pole. You know, fewer than 50 people in history at this time had ever completed the Explorer's Grand Slam. And I was trying to see if I could be the fastest to do these things back to back to back. Fewer than 50 have completed it. And it takes for a lot of people a lifetime, right? This is a multi, multi multi-year ambition that most folks have. And you're trying to do it in like six months, four months, something like that. Yeah, exactly. So I think the record was five and a half months or something like that. I was going to see if I could do it in like four or four and a half months and, and break this world record. At some point during the week we spent together back then, Colin told me about all the ways his record-breaking attempt could fall apart. If storms on Everest or Denali shut down the climbing season, he'd be sunk. Or maybe Mother Nature wouldn't be to blame. Maybe his expedition would meet a more ignominious end. He might, for example, get up to pee in the middle of the night, trip, fall, sprain his ankle, and that'd be the end of it. I also remember it wasn't a sure thing Colin would reach the starting line. Climbing seven mountains on seven continents in just a few months is not cheap. And when I hung out with them, Colin and his wife Jenna were still scrambling to raise all the money they needed. But in the end, they did raise that money, and Colin did not trip while going to the bathroom. He completed the Explorer's Grand Slam in 139 days besting the previous record by nearly two months. Something I wondered as I watched Colin prepare, and continued to wonder about even after his expedition was over, was what motivated him. When the alpinist George Mallory was asked a century ago why he wanted to be the first person to climb Mount Everest, he replied famously, because it's there. A lot of adventurers have since taken that as their motto, but I don't think Colin is one of them. For him, it seems less about being first, though obviously that matters, and more about seeing how far he can push himself, physically and mentally. That fascination, that obsession with finding, testing, exceeding his limits led him, I think, to take on his next adventure. This is unbelievable what, 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 you, what you've done. Uh, uh, the, explain what this is, the first solo crossing. So last year I became the very first person in history to cross Antarctica solo, unsupported, and completely human powered. So I had a 375 pound sled behind me, uh, no, no resupplies of food or fuel or anything like that. Um, so no one could pick me up, but a thousand mile journey to get to the South Pole and then to the other side. No one in history had ever done that. I heard in your opening monologue, you did mention that uh, 50% of people don't change their underwear every day. I may have been skewing that up because I did 54 days in the same pair of underwear to save on weight. And- <laughs> Everyone is getting a pair of his underwear tonight. So congratulations, everybody. Oh, I love that clip because I love the contrast, right? Like getting to go on The Tonight Show is like the cushiest gig ever. And yet contrast that with what Colin had to do to get there. So when I was walking across Antarctica solo um, at the end of 2018, I mean, pulling a 375-pound sled, nearly 1,000 miles across Antarctica, um, a traverse that no one in history had ever completed, people had attempted and failed, and 
person had died attempting a similar crossing a few years before me, um, really stretched to the very, very outer edges of my limits, um, the outer limits of what's possible. But I did complete it, and my average day of walking was 12 hours. So I was pulling that sled 12 hours per day, alone in Antarctica, complete solitude, basically no music, no podcast, just deep, deep in my brain. And as my body declined over the period of time, I was losing so much weight. My hips mm-hmm. were, my ribs were sticking out, my hip bones were sticking out. I had frostbite on my face, my fingers. Like I mean, I was, I was beat up. Um, you know, by the end, as as you would expect to be, I have a journey of that, um, that level of difficulty. What ended up happening is my mind got stronger and stronger, and. I, I found this place in my mind of deep flow and deep strength and deep meditative bliss, clarity, connection to family and purpose. And I really felt like, although my body externally was falling apart, my mind was just getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And so when I completed this journey, I kind of was like, wow, like I, I found this place within myself um, that's really powerful. And I felt like I could just take this with me for the rest of my life. So fast forward to March 2020. Colin's last book, The Impossible First, has just come out. It's hit the New York Times bestseller list. He's on the road promoting it. And then the world shuts down. COVID. His book tour's over. He's got an expedition planned to Everest that spring. Canceled. Not the biggest thing in the context of the world, but just disruptive, right? Like all before I know it, like I'm, you know, doing all these things, meeting all these people, you know, having this, you know, incredible experience out in the world. And then all of a sudden I'm sitting by myself in my family's house on the Oregon coast um, with my wife and my dog, you know, just crickets. Right. Mm -hmm. And I find myself and again, just like everyone, or I think a lot of people found myself depressed, anxious. I'm reading the news art, you know, it's like, it's bad news every single day. People are dying, borders are closing. Are my parents going to be okay? Are my grandparents going to be okay? You know, right? Like you just start getting in this loop. It's a, you know, frightening time. And I remember at one point my wife looks over at me, she's like, you know, you haven't changed out of your pajamas in three days. You kind of just been like sitting on the couch, like just like literally like obsessively reading the news on my phone, doom scrolling the news. And I was like, you're right. Like I'm not doing well. And I said to him, I was just kind of just thinking it through. I was like, when was the last time I felt connected to purpose, connected to self, like, you know, just feeling good in my body, mind, soul, et cetera. And I was like, you know, it was the last time was actually strangely enough when I was walking across Antarctica 12 hours a day, despite how challenging that was, despite the life and death stakes, despite, you know, how much my body had declined in that adventure. I was like, it was alone in that stillness and that silence and that motion that being outside. And so I said to my wife, I said, tomorrow I'm getting up early. I'm going for a walk all day, 12 hours. Like I'll be home around dinner time. And, you know, she's seen me. I'll do all sorts of ridiculous things. She's like, yeah, okay, have fun. See you later. You know? (laughs) Um, And so I walk out the front door and about 20 minutes in my phone buzzes in my pocket. And I I reach down for my phone, instinctively look at it. It's like my buddy's texting me. Right. And I'm about to like respond. And I'm like, wait a second, like, what am I doing? I'm out here on this walk and I'm looking at my phone. I'm texting people. Like, haven't I been like doing enough Zoom calls and FaceTimes and scrolling the news and looking at my social? Like, I don't need my phone right now. So I put my phone on airplane mode and I keep walking alone in silence for 12 hours. I take some breaks. I sit down, but I'm alone in silence, moving my body the whole time I'm outside. And I get back to my front door and I walk in and my dog jumps up on me and my my Jenna, my wife goes, she's like, you're back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I told you, like, I'd be back, like, you know, around dinner time. And she goes, no, no, 
you're back. Like she could mm. just see it. And she was right. In one day, in these 12 hours, it completely reset, reset my nervous system, reset my mindset. And I just felt better. And I was able to carry that forward through the rest of lockdown. But I thought, look, this is just like a me thing. Like this is right. like me, you know, like, great. Like I'm the guy who walked across Antarctica. <laughs> like, you know, I will walk far. That's good for me, whatever. But also, you know, as we had, as we all had, I think, friends, family members, colleagues, all sorts of people struggling during COVID. And I was like, okay, I just started telling people about this walk I've been on. Now, before I knew it, I had friends, you know, family members, young, old, fit, not so fit, take me up on it and say, I'm going to do that. And that looked differently for people. I told them, they were like, well, what if I'm not, you know, strong enough to walk for 12 hours? I was like, take as many breaks as you want. Like, this is an exercise of the mind. Like, I don't care if you go for one mile or 50 miles. Um, Like my 77-year-old mother-in-law did the 12-hour walk. She did it by walking one time around her block and then sitting on her front porch in silence for an hour and then walking another (laughs) time around her block. You know, my ultra marathon crazy fit friend did like 50 miles in 12 hours. Like, Mm -hmm. Like, neither one of them are doing it better than the other person. But the one thing that has been completely clear across the board is that every single person who have done the 12-hour walk comes back changed, comes back positively impacted, comes back with this refreshed exuberance within their mind, body, spirit, new creativity launched, you know, uh, getting clear on goals and and mindset. It's been powerful. So, you know, after my first book, The Impossible First, which is a memoir of that Antarctica journey uh, and thinking about writing this new book, which is now out, The 12-Hour Walk, I was like, I want to write another book. I want to, sh-, you know, it, it's still edge of your seat adventure stories. It's short stories. But the difference is I say I'm not the hero of this story. I'm going to share you some stories from my life that hopefully excite and ignite your brain and your mindset. But ultimately, you, the reader, or if you're listening on audiobook, the listener, you're the hero of this story. Right. There's a single call to action that invites people to take a 12-hour walk of their own. And I've explicitly said my goal is to inspire 10 million people to take the 12-hour walk. You know, and I've set up, you know, on my website and I have an app coming out soon, all the things to kind of help support this walk. But it's as simple as walk out your front door, put your phone on airplane mode, walk for 12 hours alone, silence, take breaks, and you will be amazed at the shift. And like I said, Andrew, you can sign up on 12hourwalk.com. We've already got thousands of people signed up to do the walk. Um, you can do the walk literally any day it fits in your schedule, although I am doing a mass participation day on September 10th. Again, still walking alone, but alone together. The accountability right. to know that there are others out there doing the walk. Um, but I'm just passionate about it because I'm passionate about something that's like, I'm so glad I went to Antarctica. I'm so proud of climbing Everest twice. I'm so proud of the other expeditions and world records I have. But I also realized like you can tap into this mindset. You don't have to go to Antarctica and starve yourself. Like you can walk out your front door no matter where you're at and have sweeping, sweeping impact um, in your life as a result. All right, Colin, I want to play you a clip of something I recorded yesterday. Ah, two blocks from home. I must be a sight because people are literally crossing the street to avoid me. But who cares? Because I know what I did today. One of the hardest things I've ever done. But I discovered that I can do hard things. So proud of myself. It's a lesson I want to carry forward. I can do hard things. Yes. That was me at the end of my 12-hour walk, which 
kicked my butt, both mentally and physically. But what an experience. What an experience. And exactly what you just said, I, I walked out my front door at seven in the morning. I live in LA, in, in West Hollywood. I walked all the way to the beach, walked up and down the beach, went up into the canyons, went up through the Palisades. You know, it was funny, it, like going into it, I was... I was not at all worried about the physical part of it. I was like, this is fine. I can go be on my feet and walk around for 12 hours in the heat. I was like, I don't know. What if I don't think big thoughts? Or what if I have no epiphanies? Or what if I just end up like recapping TV shows that I've seen before in my mind for 12 hours? And the complete inverse happened where, you know, within 5, 10, 20 minutes, you're thinking about your life and how you want to create meaning in the world. And I'm thinking about changes I want to make, like the expansive mental experience happened really quickly. The physical deterioration also happened quickly where you can hear at that end of that clip, man, people were crossing the street. I must've looked terrifying. I'm kind of limping <laughs> home after like 35 miles drenched in sweat. So it, it beat me up. You should see the blisters I'm, I'm currently uh, not standing on, but, but what an experience, what an incredible experience. I'm so grateful to to hear that. That's that's really fun. I know you're interviewing me, but I, now I want to interview you and ask you a couple of questions. What tell tell me what were sort of the most impactful kind of moments or or thoughts that came up for you that you want to carry forward? I love to you hearing like I'm proud of myself. I can do hard things, um, and it's certainly part of part of the the ethos of this. I'm curious what else came up for you. You know, it caused me to think a lot about where I live. I, like I said, I was in Los Angeles and. You know, it's quite an experience to see the breadth of this city when you do a 30-mile loop through it, you know, and like to see a mass baptism down at the beach in Santa Monica and to see a stripper's butthole on <laughs> Santa Monica Boulevard in, in WeHo. <laughs> the variety of life that I saw was astonishing and made me think differently about, about this city and made me realize, you know, I saw a lot of suffering too, right? I saw a lot of people who uh, are unhoused and a lot of people who were out there struggling in the heat. You know, and I just thought a lot about my relationships. I thought a lot about, you know, one of these questions that you ask in the book is sort of what is your Everest? What is this seemingly unconquerable feat that you want to set your mind to achieving? And I, you know, I thought a lot about that and I thought about how it's changed for me over time. And, you know, I'm in my very early thirties now and, and spent some time thinking like, what is my, what is my Everest for this next decade? And, and, you know, I, it's funny, like I still don't fully have the words to articulate mm -hmm. that experience, but it did change me. That's beautiful, man. Yeah. There's a, uh, for those listening, one of the things that I do really recommend, you know, it's obviously not a prerequisite. I'd say, you know, do this wherever, wherever suits you. But I think that there, I explicitly say, walk out your front door if you can. And for, for a couple of reasons, one of, one of which you touched on there, and I want to go a little deeper on it. Some people say, oh, I want to walk on this beautiful nature trail and I'm going on vacation six months from now in this beautiful location. I'm going to save it until then. And again, I'm not going to say don't walk on a beautiful nature trail. That's not, that's not my point, but it is to say there's something about that that makes a 12 hour walk feel other feels like, oh, that's part of vacation. Right. That's part of my like, not quote unquote, normal day to day life, so to speak. Right. Versus when you walk out your front door, a couple of things happen now when you're driving, you know, you're driving mm -hmm. 10 miles away from your house and you get to an intersection, you'll be like, oh, 
this is where I was at hour five. And I was yeah. thinking about this sort of thing, right? It imprints differently. Like, you know, you're someone's commuting to work or someone, you know, part of their day-to-day routine. They're like, I didn't realize I could like walk to, I walked here once. Right. And like, so the reverberation of both those thoughts and that experience start to imprint in a pretty unique and interesting way. And also so many people, it seems to be a common refrain, which I love, I, I guess for lack of a better word, it's empathy, right? Like you start to notice things in our day-to-day life, we're moving at the speed of a car or just, you know, wrapped up in our phone or whatever that is, like these subtle things. And, you know, if you said a stripper's butthole all the way down to a baptism, all the way down to, I'm sure, this tiny little kind of details in and around your own local community. It's like, wow, like there's a lot of things happening out here, but without Mm -hmm. slowing down, you don't fully notice that. Taking a 12-hour walk is definitely an opportunity to think differently about your community, but it's also, and primarily, an opportunity to think differently about yourself. If that sounds a little woo-woo to you, you're not alone. A few days after my 12-hour walk, I saw a friend and I explained to him what I'd done. And he said, how was it? And I was like, oh, it was amazing. And he said, so did you solve all of your problems? Are you rich and famous and satisfied now? And I said, no. And he looks at me and goes, well, then I guess the 12-hour walk didn't work. And look, I get it. It's easy to be suspicious of self-helpy, quick fixes. But I also think it's worth asking yourself, how much of your day do you actually spend thinking big thoughts, right? How much of your time do you spend asking deep questions? And I would guess that it's probably not nearly as much time as you spend, I don't know, fending off annoying emails or watching another episode of a show that you don't even think is very good. And so what's interesting about the 12-hour walk is that it's an opportunity, an invitation to retrain your focus on yourself. And that may sound a little solipsistic, but I don't know. I think maybe the occasional bout of solipsism is actually better than mindlessly watching crappy TV. I mentioned earlier that before you take this walk, Colin encourages you to ask, what's my Everest? What's some long-standing goal I have? Maybe it's writing a book or starting a business. And what's standing in my way? Colin says he's asked thousands of people this question. What's getting in the way of you pursuing your goal? And he expected to get thousands of different responses. But instead, he got the same few responses a thousand times. People said stuff like, I don't have enough money, or I don't know the right people, or I'm afraid of failing. He calls these mental roadblocks limiting beliefs. When I say, we'll do this 12-hour walk, it helps reset all those limiting beliefs. And there's a reason mm-hmm. that the walk connects to it. And for some, you know, for oftentimes that's not so obvious. But one of the ones that you spoke about, which I think is really powerful, is how a- a- implicitly, you know, a little bit uncomfortable you were, sweaty, tired, you know, blisters on your feet. You know, you said people are crossing the street because you're obviously, you know, in a little bit of, you know, a little disheveled um, getting yeah. back to your front door. Um, certainly a step outside of your comfort zone. And why is that valuable? Like, why why put yourself through that? And, you know, I talk about this and it's something that I'm very passionate about, which is I've come to think about life somewhat on this scale of one to 10. Um, you know, one being our lowest, lowest moments in our life. You know, that burn accident we talked about at the top of this interview, for sure, a one moment for me, lying in a Thai hospital in that much pain. Of course, that's a one. And the 10s being these high highs, right? It's the 
you know, for me, uh, the external achievement of completing the Antarctica crossing, like after so much challenge, like, oh, amazing. Or the day your first child is born or falling in love or, you know, surfing the perfect wave or having amazing sex, right? Like tens, like we all want tens, like tens are amazing. There's these peak moments, right? right. In our lives. And what I've come to realize is when I've experienced tens, most, if not all the tens I've experienced in my life, haven't actually come in spite of the ones. They've come because of the ones or mm -hmm. the potential of the ones. We have, with modern conveniences, have taken a lot of discomfort off of the table. And because of that, it's somewhat easy to live in what I call this zone of comfortable complacency, this zone between four and six. It's like you go to work, you got a job, you don't love it, you don't hate it. Like it's a five every day. It's like five, 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 five. Or maybe you're in a relationship and you know, it's not toxic. It's not abusive or anything like that. You're cohabitating. It's fine, but it's just kind of like a five. It's just sort of like on autopilot, five, 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 five. And I'm not to say you don't want to have some fives in your life. Mm -hmm. You know, you got to be in that comfort zone some of the time, but a life made of, you know, months and years in a row of five, 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 every single day leads to this zone of just complacency. And if yeah. people, what I've realized is people are often staying there because they are so afraid of the ones they're mm. so afraid of feeling a little bit of discomfort but when you take the ones or the 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 thought or the risk of a one off the table you also take the tense off the table mm -hmm. and so the walk is this interesting proof of concept and it, it sounds like from the story you shared and i love that you did this yesterday is you were tired your feet were sore. You know, the, the physical sensation, it sounds like in some regards, we're tipping more towards the, the twos and the threes. I don't know if we got all the way to a one, but like, of a like, oh man, like kind of want this to be over. But I can also hear it in your voice. And I know this from all the people who have done this walk. Like you push through a little bit of the challenge. You push through mm -hmm. that adversity. You do this hard thing and you get back to your front door. I could hear it. You're like, I can do hard things. Like the, the pendulum, you allow the pendulum to swing back to the two or three range but upon completion, it's all the way back to this peak arc. Like, wow, this has changed me. Wow, this was powerful. Wow, I can take the strength, the courage, everything I've learned from that into my life moving forward. You know, so by allowing yourself to actually feel some of the discomfort, and I talk about in this book, I say, embrace the ones. Mm -hmm. It's not like I don't seek out ones necessarily like, oh, I want to have a terrible day, right? But when I am having some challenge or some adversity in my life, I've been able to reframe that and go, great. This likely means it's opening up the door to having this peak experience, to having this peak moment, to learning about myself. You know, the growth, the growth happens outside the comfort zone. And so you got to push yourself outside that zone from time to time to really reap the rewards of those lessons. Yeah. You know, one of the things I loved about, about this walk and about this concept is that, you know, these limiting beliefs, something like I don't like to be uncomfortable or I don't have what it takes or whatever. You know, the walk becomes both a microcosm to experience some of those things in a pretty contained environment. It's also an opportunity to ask bigger questions, to, to confront some of the bigger limiting beliefs in your life because you're out there on the road for 12 hours, no phone, no other people. You sort of have no choice but to start digging into yourself and, and exploring some of those things that we oftentimes avoid through convenience, right? I think convenience, you know, not only do we not experience the ones, but we don't spend the time doing some of the kind of mental excavation that we need to do to move forward. One of the ones that you, a limiting belief that you talk about that I was feeling a little bit yesterday out there on the road is this idea of, I am not a blank, 
right? Mm-hmm. You know, like as I was out there on hour nine, I was like, what am I doing? Like, I'm just trying to interview this guy for a podcast. I'm not a, I'm not a w- athlete. Why am I suffering out here in 92 degree heat? Like, uh, this isn't me. You tell a really great, I am not a blank story in the book about the lead up to what you call the impossible row. I wonder if you could share that with us. I write a chapter about rowing a boat across Drake Passage, and it's this crazy treacherous row. For those that don't know what the Drake Passage is, it's the stretch of ocean from the southern tip of South America to Antarctica. It's about 750 miles where the Southern Ocean, Atlantic Ocean, and Pacific all converge, and it's just a notorious stretch of water. You know, there's been shipwreck after shipwreck, and even in modern times, like a cruise ship sunk in the Drake Passage in the last you know decade or so. Mm-hmm. Um, it is it is crazy. And I set the goal to see if I can row a boat across the Drake Passage. You know, no sail, no motor, this tiny little rowboat that rides about, you know, two or three feet um, off the water. And I do it with five others. And I set this goal. We get the team together. I uh, pitch it to Discovery Channel. Discovery Channel decides to greenlight a a feature film that they're going to make about it called The Impossible Row. And then I got to look in the mirror as well as tell Discovery Channel, like, I know we're leaving for this. It's three months later. We're about to depart. We're leaving for this in three months. Just so everyone knows, I've never rowed a boat anywhere. <laughs> literally, literally. Like, I know they're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, yeah, yeah, like not summer camp, not like, you know, not like on um, the crew team in college. Like I have straight up have not rowed a boat anywhere. And again, this, you know, you listening to this, you might be like, that sounds ridiculous. Like you're going to, you set this goal, you're about to do this. And like, you know, you need a little more experience. You're going to kill yourself out there. That's not the point of the story. And then I go into sharing this moment of basically, um, I, I get a, a friend of mine, this guy named Chris, who is a rower, you know, a guy who has been rowing for 25 years. And I reach out to him and I say, Hey man, like I got this crazy project I got going on. Can you teach me how to row? And he kind of laughs at me. He's like, you're doing what? When? Like, how long do I have to prepare you for this? Um, but he's like, all right, well, let's let's go to the basics. And he takes me out to the river, uh, the Willamette River in Portland. And I get on a single skull. And I literally try to take my first stroke on a rower. And I flip off the boat. And I land smack into the river. <laughs> but I'm in six inches of water. And I stand up. And I'm like, shit, what did I get myself into? But the point of that and the point of the limiting belief is I am not a blank. I was not a rower in this moment. Literally had never rowed, even though I mm-hmm. set myself this massive rowing go. But you, you add one word to the end of the sentence and it changes everything. I'm not a rower yet, right? I'm not a rower yet, but I'm willing to. And part of the willingness to do so is the willingness to be a beginner, right? The willingness to say like, I don't really know how to do this, but like, I'm going to try. And guess what? I'm probably going to fall on my face a few times, but like, I'm going to get better every single day. And I kept coming back to the river and I kept learning more. And I eventually did row successfully across the Drake Passage, you know, setting a world record, becoming the first team to ever do that crossing uh, in a human powered rowboat, the only team to have ever done it ever in history. And the lesson is Anecdotally, this is interesting. So I, I've done a lot of work with kids and nonprofits, and I ask kids this question, what's your Everest? And gymnasium is full of 500 kids, elementary school kids. And I get 500 hands raised up in the air. Like I hear amazing answers from all these, you know, nine, 10 year olds, you know, Colin, my Mount Everest is to be the first person in my family to graduate from college. Or my Mount Everest is make sure the snow leopards are off the endangered species list or, you know, all sorts of things. I want to do this. I want to do that one day. It's great. I ask high school kids the same question and about half as many hands go up. College kids, a third of the hands. 
I, and I do a lot of corporate speaking uh, as well. You know, you know, corporate America, you know, average age 40 years old in the room. I'm lucky if I get three hands raised wow. in the air. And so after I saw this pattern over and over, I'm like, what's happening here? And what I realized is this possible mindset, you know, one of which is this limiting, getting over this limiting belief of I'm not a blank, this identity of what you're not is that we're actually born with possible mindsets. It's part of our DNA. We come into this world believing that we can be and become anything we set our minds to. But unfortunately, our society over time kind of chips away at that belief and that confidence. And the 12-hour walk, the book and the walk itself is to not teach you something you don't know, but it's actually to reteach you so you can relearn what you already know, which is you can be and become anything. The point is, is that like at any phase of your life, we still have the ability to claim this. And so how does the 12-hour walk apply to that? Well, most likely, as you said, uh, Caleb, you're not, you're like, I'm not an athlete. You know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a guy. What am I doing out here? Like walking around for 12 hours. What the heck am I doing out here? The limiting belief says, I'm not this, mm -hmm. but you get to the end of it and you go, oh, well, yeah, I had never walked 12 hours before, but now for the rest of your life, actually, you are somebody who has completed the 12 hour walk. You get to mm -hmm. own that and claim that as a part of your identity because you had the gall, the gumption to do this. And I love to say that the 12 hour walk experience actually happens right. The beginning of it happens right now. What I mean by that is if you're listening to this podcast, and you're hearing the suggestion of this idea of a 12 hour walk for the very first time, your brain does something interesting in this moment. If this is your first time hearing about this, which is your brain, you know, maybe there's 1% of you listening that goes, this is the best idea. I've already gone to the 12 hour walk.com to Colin's website. I've signed up. I'm in, I'm doing it tomorrow. Like whatever. I'm like, great. You know, welcome to, welcome to the tribe. I love the enthusiasm. Or maybe there's 1% of people listening, hopefully not that much, but they're like, this is the stupidest idea I've ever heard. I'm deleting this podcast. I'm blocking Colin on social media. I want nothing to do with any of this. Like, you know, a complete, you know, unsubscribe. Hopefully there's not too many of those, but most people are somewhere in the middle of this, which is you're listening to this podcast. Podcast, this is being suggested to you and your brain starts to go, should I do this? Mm -hmm. You're like, even if you're like even 10% intrigued, right? Your brain just goes through a cycle of like curiosity. Huh? Is this for me? Yes or no? What I find is people's brains, even people that want to do this, start bargaining with themselves. They're right. like, yeah, I want to do this someday, but you know what? Like, I don't have enough time. Or like, man, like Caleb just told me about his blisters and like, ah, that sounds terrible. And I don't want blisters on my feet. Like, you know, ah, this thing's like not for me. What ends up happening is actually limiting beliefs start looping in your brain a little bit right in this moment from the immediate suggestion instantly triggers limiting beliefs. And why I say the 12 hour walk experience starts happening this moment is that just the suggestion of this idea of a 12 hour walk is me holding up a mirror to you. Because I found more often than not, whatever limiting beliefs you may be applying to this moment, to this walk, oh, I'm not a walker. I don't have the time for that, etc. Turns out that limiting belief is likely the same thing that loops on your brain in all sorts of circumstances over the next week, over the next month, over the next year. But here's the thing. Those are limiting beliefs. Those are not limiting truths. Those are not limiting facts. You actually have the choice to rewrite that. We are the stories that we tell ourselves. And so even if the limiting belief is in your mind right now, but you somehow still commit to the walk and you complete the walk, 
The next time that limiting belief comes up, you go, oh, I remember when I thought I didn't have enough time, but mm-hmm. I reprioritized my schedule. I put this on the calendar three weeks from now. I got the babysitter. I took the day off work because this is important to me, whatever that looks like for you to reprioritize that. And so the next time that I don't have enough time, limiting belief pops up in your brain. You go, oh, hello, limiting belief. I see you there, but I don't have to listen to you. That voice can get a little bit quieter and that possible mindset voice can get louder and louder and more pronounced. And so that bargaining with yourself, that mirror to your own limiting beliefs, be conscious and aware of what that is for you right now and see how that might apply and how you can actually break that down through completing the 12-hour walk. You know, something I'm thinking about as you're talking and something I was thinking about a little bit yesterday on this walk is, you know, every big goal is just a series of small goals, right? And so out on the walk, it's not, okay, I just got to get through the next six hours. It's like, all right, I just got to get to the end of this block. Let me get to the end of this block and then I'm going to get to that tree down there. Then once I get to that tree, I'm going to sit down. And then after the tree, I'm going to get to that stoplight. And, you know, I think it applies to what you're just talking about, right? Like I'm not a rower. It's easy to say like, well, I have this big goal. I'd love to row to the Drake, you know, row the Drake Passage, but I'm not a rower. So whatever, that's never going to happen. And it's like, well, I'm not a rower, but... I can go out on this little river in six inches of water and become a rower. And then tomorrow I can go out in a bigger body of water and then I can get in a bigger boat. And, you know, I I think that really, that mindset seems crucial to everything you've accomplished. I mean, even going back to beyond 7-2, the Seven Summits, Explorers Grand Slam Challenge, you weren't a mountain climber, right? You weren't someone who's like, yeah, I've climbed Everest six or seven times and I think now I'm ready to try to bag them all. Like, you were someone who's coming at this from an outsider and I think you created these incremental goals for yourself that made it something you could actually accomplish, right? A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, I think that that is, I think that we, in so many different ways, there's this sort of hedging, I don't know if it's hedging, but like thinking we have to like master something, right? And Mm. uh, before starting, before even beginning, you know, I love the phrase, certainly not my phrase, but I love the phrase, don't let perfect be the enemy of the good, right? Mm. It's like, some people think, well, I could never go try to climb this mountain. And that's why I know how to tie every single knot and do every single thing. And I've been doing it forever. And it's like, okay. Or you could like go with somebody more experienced than you and like learn from them. But like, mm-hmm. accept the beginner's mindset. Be like, I'm just out here learning. Like, how fun is that? How cool is that? Like when we're kids, we're always learning. We're constantly learning. But as adults, our, our viewpoint gets a little bit more narrow, right? When I did summit Mount Everest for the first time in 2016 as part of the Explorers Grand Sam project, I got to the top and looked down and there's, you know, basically rocks and ice, as you might expect at the top of a mountain. And I reached down and I picked up this tiny little pebble, um, small rock. And for many, many years, I've carried that rock in my pocket since. Mm. And the reason I carry that rock in my pocket is it's a reminder for me that even Mount Everest, the tallest mountain in the world, at the very top is a tiny little pebble, which means this huge mountain is actually just a bunch of small rocks stacked on top of each other, millions and millions of steps leading to the summit. And again, it's just for me, just a metaphor in my own life and a reminder of, right, an Everest-sized goal feels so far. It feels so out of reach. That's why it's easy to quit on it. You're like, okay, one day that, well, that would take me 10 years to do the thing and learn the thing. You know, I'm never going to do that. Mm-hmm. But just asking yourself every day, like, oh, what's one more little pebble that I can pick up on my path? What's one more little way? Like that is how you chip away from this. And it's certainly how I have gotten to to where I where I have gotten with a lot of these goals. It's to set that big goal, which is fun and exciting and ends up being a North Star. Oh, my Everest is this, or I want to row across Drake Passage. But then asking yourself the micro, 
like, well, what can I do right now? What's the one little thing? And I love how you apply that to the 12 hour walk, the walk itself, which is 12 hours can seem like a daunting amount of time, but it's like, oh, can I, can I get to the edge of my neighborhood? You know, can I get to the end of the next block? Can I get a little bit further? Okay. I've been out here for an hour. Okay. Well, I've done an hour. Can I do two hours? Right. I've done two hours. Can I do it? You know, and kind of like breaking it down. What's so interesting about time too, is that on one hand, 12 hours and a 12 hour walk, spending a whole day doing this seems like a long amount of time. On the other hand, it's one day, not even a day, it's half a right. day, right? right? Which is you look back on your life and you're like, how many days for all of us go by that you don't ever remember, right? Mm-hmm. Like, what'd you do last Tuesday? What'd you do a week ago? What'd you do a month ago? What do you mean? It's like in 365 days in a year, like how many of those days can you actually remember with a year distance from them? Not that many. But the 12 hour walk, like I guarantee if you do that 12 hour walk and I ask you about it a year from now, you're not going to be like, huh, did I do that? I can't remember. Like you're going to remember doing this. Like it's an opportunity to put an impactful memory, an impactful sort of waypoint on your life's journey uh, into place. How many 12 hour walks have you done now? Oh, God, it's a good question. Well, I did 54 in a row in Antarctica. Um, <laughs> Those don't count. Uh, does it count? Um, no, since the inception of the 12 hour walk idea. See, uh, like four or five, you know, like kind of like it's kind of become like a once per quarter thing for mm-hmm. me. It's interesting. I, I don't know how, how you feel about this. Maybe the blisters are still uh, too raw on your feet. But uh, one of the things I didn't necessarily know or expect when I launched this idea into the world was how many people write to me and they say, oh, my God, I did a 12 hour walk. Thank you. You know, I love it. People share these beautiful insights with me. And then they're like. I've already put my next one on the count. Like mm. I'm going to need this again in six months. Um, just like it's a kind of, they're like, oh, this has been such a great way to reset. Um, and so again, I'm not like, you know, saying, oh, you have to do it multiple times. Like do it once, try it. But it's been um, an interesting byproduct to see uh, people like, you know, being like, oh, this is a great yearly check-in with myself or a great sort of ritual um, that they're, you know, already in, putting into place uh, now and into the future, which I find to be really interesting and cool as well. Yeah, I'm not. I, my, my next one isn't on the calendar, but I think I would like to do one again. You know, it's funny. I was talking with my girlfriend when I got back and this sort of defeats the purpose. I think part of the what makes it such a profound experience is you're out there alone with, you know, only your own thoughts for company. But I'd actually love to do one with her, you know, just I was like, when is the last time we spent 12 hours, just the two of us unplugged, not worrying about our dog, not worrying about our jobs, not taking care of this and that just out there talking with each other about, you know, where are we headed in life? What do we want to do together? What do we still want to accomplish? You know, I think that would be a really, this sort of the 12 hour duo would be pretty (laughs) rad. Well, I think, I mean, the essence, um, obviously the, the main thing I'm advocating for is the stillness and the silence, the solitude, but the, what you're saying rings true in my ears as well, because it's like, the magic of the 12 hour walk, although it can be summed up in one sentence, it's like walk out your doorway, put your phone in airplane mode, right? Like that's a tweet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but it, this, there's something about the simplicity and what it, why, like, why is that impactful for individuals? It's because of what you said. It's because of presence, right? Mm-hmm. And it's so, it's so easy. And look, I'm, I'm guilty of this too. It's not like I get to the end of the 12 hour walk and I say to somebody, well now become a monk and throw your phone in the trash and, you know, abandon your family and go live in the hills in the <laughs> Himalaya and meditate, you know, 24 hours a day. Like that's not the point. The point is how do you assimilate this into your day-to-day life? But at the same time, what's interesting is that the walk itself forces that presence. Like you can go through your entire life 
like I said, I'm guilty of this at times with just an endless to-do list, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh, my calendar's full. I've got this meeting. I got this phone call. I got to do this thing. I got to do that thing. I got to do this. I got to pay the bills. I got to take the kid to the soccer practice. I got to, you know, right? Like, and those are good commitments, like have tos, want tos, et cetera, a combination of all those things. But your point, it's like, you know, from knowing you, I think you have a great relationship with your girlfriend, but you're like, wait a second, when is the last time that we like mm-hmm. just actually with no distractions were present with one another and what could come from that. And that the essence of the 12 hour walk is really asking that question from the vantage point of when's the last time I actually checked in with myself, right? With myself. Like I want to be the best parent. I want to be the best colleague. I want to be the best, um, you know, husband, father, whatever, you know, that looks like whatever moniker that is, but it's like, you need to actually be your best self, right? To, be the best for all these other people um, sort of in in your life that you're looking to take care of. And it's so easy to distract yourself, to get the dopamine hit off social media, to you know put on the Netflix or whatever day after day after day and not take that time to check in with yourself. Um, and it's powerful as a result. So I want to ask you one last question, which is in your now semi-regular 12-hour walks, what have you learned about yourself? You know, what what have been some of your epiphanies or discoveries or hurdles you've overcome? I think the thing that's been at least the cycle that I see a little bit is in the first few hours for me anyways, I don't know if it was like this for you, but the first few hours, I feel like I have like the noise, all the like things that are just like looping at the front of my brain. You know, like I said, like the to-do list or, oh my God, I got to send that email. Or maybe I'm like annoyed or frustrated about some conversation I recently had. And I start like adjudicating this, like I should have said this to that person. They would have said this, you know what I mean? Like having some like little argument with yourself or something like silly like that. But what I find and why I tell people it's 12 hours, you got to commit to the entire time. Look, take as many breaks as you want, sit down, rest but commit to the entire duration of the 12 hours. Because what I end up noticing is that in the back half of these 12 hours, I cut through the like, oh, I needed to think about this, that, and the other thing, my blah, 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 whatever. And finally my brain or my nervous system quiets down and I get into this deeper layer, uh, for lack of a better word, at least that's the way I think about it. And I find myself coming back to, and I think that that's when my wife, Jenna, on that first 12 hour was like, you're back. Is like, I get through the kind of surface level stuff and I'm not saying surface level is unimportant, right? Like we all have the things that we got to do and this and that and sort out, but it connects me back to the deeper purpose of myself. And I felt that towards the end of my Antarctica walk as well. The, the what really matters types of questions, you know, for lack of a word, the existential questions about, you know, for me that ends up being about family, relationships, love, compassion, empathy. Um, and so it's, it's always, every time I've done it, it's been different. It's been a different experience, but I've noticed again, and this is my own experience. I'm sure people, everyone's different. The pattern in myself, which is the noise in the first few hours is, is important to be aware of because I think the surface level thoughts are looping in our brains over and over and over and over again, commonly for us. Right. And then it's always a good reminder to cut through that noise and go like, oh, right. But underlying that is this sort of foundational resonance that I need to connect more to. And it allows me to bring that up to the more surface, up to the surface 
and not let some of those kind of just whatever day-to-day to-dos loop too often in my brain, if that makes sense. No, totally. Yeah, all, when you're out there, all the bullshit kind of fades away and you're just sort of floating in this big expanse of, of who you are asking those big existential questions. It's a, it's a powerful experience. I can't recommend it enough. So, Colin, thank you for this book and, and thanks for talking to me today. My pleasure. Great to be here with you. That was Colin O'Brady, author of The 12-Hour Walk. As he mentioned, he's encouraging as many people as possible to join him in taking a 12-hour walk alone together on September 10th. You can learn more and sign up at 12hourwalk.com. Our show today was written and produced by me, Caleb Bissinger, sound designed by Mike Toda. The Next Big Idea is produced in partnership with LinkedIn. Next week, I'm taking you out to the ballgame. See you then. WeHo was kind of a weird place to finish this day of meditation. Hey, one last thing before I go. I want to tell you something I just learned. 81% of people say they wish they could read more, but they just don't have the time. If you're in that 81%, I may have a solution for you. It's the Next Big Idea app. We have partnered with more than 500 of the best nonfiction writers at work today. I'm talking about folks like Walter Isaacson, Anne Lamott, Heather McGee, Adam Grant, Daniel Pink. The list is endless. And we've worked with them to create 15-minute audio summaries where they distill their books down into five big ideas. And because these summaries, we call them book bites, because they're written and read by the authors themselves, you know you're getting the real thing. So if you're a person who struggles to fit reading into your day, I think this might be the answer for you. And accessing this incredible library of book bites could not be easier. All you have to do is go to your app store, search for the next big idea, and download the next big idea app. There's no better way to get smart fast. Download it today. Search for the next big idea in your app store.